On average, there is at least one mass shooting in America every single day. Gun violence is an epidemic that shows no signs of stopping. But why? Why is banning guns so controversial? Who's standing in the way? And why would anyone still be in support of gun ownership? In this episode, we discuss an issue that continues to plague and divide America as we figure out why are guns still legal? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Returning to the podcast this week from the faculty is Emma Long, Associate Professor of American History and Politics and Head of the Department of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. Never gets easier to say, but welcome back, Emma. Hi, Liam. Good to see you again. Pleasure, as always. And joining us this week is a very special guest. He's a retired Army officer and Black Hawk helicopter pilot and a combat-wounded veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Today, he serves as the veteran lead for the nation's largest gun violence prevention organisation, Everytown for Gun Safety, and we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Uh, he's also an expert on gun suicide prevention and currently producing a documentary exploring American gun culture. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the show, Chris Marvin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So it's a real honour to have you on the podcast. Your unique perspective is one that, that neither I nor Emma share and, and I'm sure as well is um, unique to any of our listeners. And on that, subject before we dive into this you've obviously had quite a pivot in your career that many might think is a bit drastic going from combat soldier to now campaigning against gun violence so explain that move to us i mean quite simply we feel that those who serve in the military and in the profession of arms in the uh, in the u.s are best suited to talk about guns and and gun violence and and the proper use of guns in in a rational way and so the work that i do is to actually not just lend my own voice but to gather other veterans who are in favor of common sense gun safety measures and and let them talk about their experience with firearms right so if, if we're going to talk about assault weapons you know these are people who have been trained to use assault weapons for their intended purpose right and in, in, in combat if we're going to talk about background checks or other other laws that will limit or prohibit people's access to guns. You know, veterans understand how the military handles guns. And one of the things we talk often about is that the military has more or less three pillars of its gun culture, and those are training, safety, and accountability. And so we're taught that in the military, but we don't always see that in America's gun laws, especially in, in certain states. They're, they're lacking all of those, lacking training, safety, or accountability for the gun laws and gun culture that pervades. So uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense to have those people who, who fought uh, for the country and, and, and worked in the profession of arms to be talking about guns. Yeah, that, that does make complete sense. And before we get into the, the nitty gritty of talking about gun ownership, if you could elaborate a bit on the, on the numbers, people who don't know, exactly how many people are we talking about here who are injured or, or killed from gun crime? They're still assembling numbers for 2022. The one thing I can probably tell you is that those numbers will likely be higher than 2021. But uh, in 2021, we had nearly 48,000 people who were killed by guns in the United States. 
um, another 40,000, 48,000, 48,000, another 40,000 were, were wounded. And, and, you know, quite frankly, it's an epidemic that includes, uh, gun suicides, which actually outpace, um, non-suicide gun deaths. So it's important to note that, that this access to guns is not just a violence issue, um, but it's giving people easy access to incredibly lethal suicidal means. Um, of course, a death is a death and a death by a gun is a death by a gun. But, but yeah, we're, we're going to crest if, if things keep going the way they are, we're going to crest 50,000 very quickly. I mean, that's, that's a crazy number to me uh, just unbelievable almost Emmett uh, taking a, a bit of a, a historical look at this how how has it gotten this bad and I'm, I'm gonna just throw this out there because I think it, it, it's always going to come back to this the second amendment is that to blame why, why was the second amendment created and and how problematic has it been Oh, good grief. We need a series of podcasts to answer those questions. I mean, you have to remember, we've talked about it on this podcast before, right? the Second Amendment, the Constitution itself was written in a different historical period. There wasn't a regular standing army. In fact, the founders thought that a regular standing army was a really bad thing because they thought that if you had a standing army, you had to find something to do with it. And therefore, it was more likely to make your country warlike. Of course, things have changed over time. But the, the idea back in the, the late 1700s was this sense that citizens, citizen soldiers, that, you know, people were committed to keeping their areas, their towns, their cities, their regions, their states safe, and that this was better for the, the nation as a, as a whole. Um, and in order to do that, you needed people who were armed. And also, I think importantly, thinking about Chris's point there about training and safety, that they were, that they were trained. I mean, that, that was also part of the civic responsibility of gun ownership and being part of what were then known as militia were, was that it was sort of it was both a right and a responsibility to do those things. And I think sometimes when we look at the modern debate about the Second Amendment, we forget the history. It's that the principle is talked about, but not the history that it, it came out of. Is it to blame? No, not in and of itself, I don't think. But the, the politics of it you know, have had a role to play. And I think you can, you know, it might sound a bit like splitting hairs, but it's not the, the Second Amendment per se. It's the way it's been used as a political tool that's contributed to, to this. In terms of numbers, it's really hard. The US didn't have sort of a regular police force until the later part of the 19th century. And sort of record keeping and those kinds of things are, is, is quite hard to track down in, in this area. But we do know that discussions about gun control laws quite often begin at times where there's that where there either is or a sense of increased gun violence so we see early gun laws around prohibition and the banning of alcohol or the sale of alcohol and sort of the era of gangster the sort of the gangster era and we see it again in the 1960s after the very public assassinations of John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. And, and then sort of the debate has really changed politically since sort of about the 1970s. So it's hard to trace that history as clearly as some people might like, but it ties into the the broader debate that I think we're going to come and, and look at, which is the politics of it rather than the legal side of it. Yeah, and, and, and there's definitely something that we need to touch on later about sort of the morality of gun law reform versus the politics and arguably the money. I guess the question, uh, and Chris, I'm, I'm going to throw this at you. The facts are what they are. 48,000 people dying every year. We can't argue with those numbers. So regardless of uh, of everything else, surely 
everyone in Congress could agree, that needs to change. So why is it so hard for anything to actually change? Well, I'm not sure if everyone in Congress is ever going to agree on anything. So they, they, they may should <laughs> agree. But in our lifetimes, in the last, you know, since the early 1980s, the, the gun lobby has taken a different tact in the United States. And there was something at the, at the NRA at the convention in the, in the early 80s called the Cincinnati Revolt, where basically the gun manufacturers, people who represented gun manufacturers, took over leadership of the National Rifle Association, which previously was a sporting organization that taught gun safety and marksmanship. And, and ever since then, there's been like a slow buildup of, no, this is about gun sales, right? We want to sell more guns. We want to make more money. And it's just like any industry, right? And, and the U.S. has seen it with big tobacco, seen it with big pharma. We can toss aside the, the, the death toll, the Americans who are dying from you know, cigarettes or opioids and now guns because we need to sell the product at, at any cost. And, uh, and certain politicians get, you know, have the, the gun lobby in their pocket. And they're going to vote, no matter what their constituents think, they're going to vote for those, the, the, the political dollars that they're earning. And a great example is, is background checks on every gun sale in the U.S., right? So background checks right now are required if you purchase a gun from a federally licensed firearm dealer. But there's a loophole in our background check law that allows person-to-person -person sales to be purchased without a background check. That means effectively that at a gun show you can, or from a, or from a neighbor or an uncle, you can buy a gun without having to go through the background check. But that law was made in the infancy of the internet and it applies now to the internet. So it means online, I can do a person-to-person -person sale, which you know how connected the internet makes us. So it means basically anybody can buy a, a gun without a background check. And if the state itself doesn't provide an additional background check uh, law to layer on top of the federal law. But 95% of Americans think that we should have background checks on all gun sales at the federal level. More than half of Congress won't support that. So to me, that's a fundamental failure of representative democracy. Like these people are elected by their constituents and in every single district and state that they come from, their constituents in, in the majority believe that we should have this law about guns. It would be paramount in, in starting to quell the, you know, sur the surge of gun violence, but they won't vote for it because they have you know, special interests from the gun lobby funding their campaigns and they don't they want to get elected next time so that and it, and that has become a platform of, of the conservative right and the and the, the Republican Party is, is being pro-gun pro-second amendment and we, we can go on and on about that but that's really what it is it's divided along party lines at this point yeah and uh, we definitely need to we will touch on the, the NRA and we'll, we'll try to do so in a way that, that won't get this podcast taken down. But uh, first, let's assume in an ideal world, reform can go ahead. Everyone's in agreement. It needs to happen. Emma, what, what's that legal process look like? I mean, no different from any other law if you've got some degree of, of agreement, right? You know, one side introduces it, you have a debate, people vote on it, and hopefully, you know, you in the situation that you set out, people support it, and it, it goes and gets signed. What's complicated in the American system is that quite often when we talk about gun laws from outside of the United States, we're thinking about federal gun laws, right, about gun laws that, that cover the entire country. And, you know, there have been some of those in the, the past. And I mean, Joe Biden signed one just last year, although opinion polls suggest that there's some skepticism about how much of an impact that it might have but it's important that there was at least something you know with some of the the 
controls that, that they had. Uh, so you, you can follow that process and see how that, that happened. But you also have to remember that in a federal system like the United States, most gun laws are not federal, they're state. They're passed at state level. And I think this is potentially part of the problem, Chris, that you're dealing with, because you're having to have those debates at 50 times at 50 different state levels with some that, uh, some states that are perhaps more open than, than others to, to that. And, you know, so if you, you are a citizen traveling across the United States, you encounter different gun laws as you travel across the, the United States. And, and the different politics of the different states means you've got different debates going on in different places. Yeah. And it also seems to me that there, there is a, an element here that it's not just politics. You know, that as an outsider looking at coverage of, of, of this kind of stuff on, on the news, there is a uh, swathes of support among people in certain states for owning guns and their right to to have a gun and defend themselves and and usually they they throw the second amendment as you know uh, claim some sort of constitutional right for that but chris do you do you think it, it's more than that you know what what is it about owning a gun that seems to go hand in hand with this idea of being american I, you know, it's I, I assume from the outside, we, we all seem like we're gun-toting, freedom-loving Yankees or, or whatever. I, I, I it's This debate is very, very split. There are people who like to beat their chest uh, and that with the American flag t-shirt on and, and, and carry around their guns. And, um, and, there, and there's just as many, probably more that, and really, I should say this, there's a lot of gun owners in the United States who own guns for the right reasons, for hunting, for sport, because they collect guns, because they were in the military or, the, or, or law enforcement and they enjoy, they enjoy shooting and, and maybe they know how to protect their, their household or their family if it came to that. But, um, and we have a lot of people who are gun owners who, who support strong gun safety laws, who say, if I buy a gun, I should go through a background check. I should store my gun safely in my house, separate from ammunition. I should you know, know how to use the, the gun. And, and I would actually say that the majority of gun owners are like that. So what we what we're trying to think about now is like, most Americans don't own guns, right? And, and then you have this smaller proportion that owns guns within that the ma- vast majority of them are safe and good responsible gun owners. So then you have a really small fraction of people we're talking about the last fifth, you know, five percentiles or something, um, or, or less who are saying guns everywhere all the time for everybody. And unfortunately, that narrative is echoed through the gun lobby and and then into Congress. Again, they're not representing, I mean, I, I told you 95% of people want background checks. Well, that's who are the 5% who don't? Who are the 5% who say, you know what, we should just let 17 year old boys buy guns in Walmart parking lots for cash. And that's fine. They can get an assault rifle. Why not? Like who's saying that? And how sane are they? But why is why is half of Congress in, in agreement with you know, 5% of the population. So I, I think that, that that causes a problem. And it's actually proven by something that Emma pointed out, which is that we have 50 different states with 50 and, and, and Washington, D.C. with 51 different gun laws. I am unique in that I happen to live in the only state that does not have terrestrial borders. I live in Hawaii. I live on an island. And we have the second strongest gun safety laws in the country. And we have the lowest, by far the lowest gun violence rates. So it immediately correlates and is causal to the fact that we've made good gun laws, we have, uh, you know, less gun death, less gun violence. And then, of course, politicians like to talk about, well, what about Chicago? Because Chicago is in Illinois, and Illinois has really strong gun laws too, but they have a, a epidemic of gun violence in Chicago. And I like to point out that St. Louis, which is about a five hour drive away, is in Missouri, borders Illinois, has 
way worse gun rates than Chicago. <laughs> but but also that Chicago has bad gun rates because it borders Indiana, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Missouri, which all have really, really lax gun laws. And nothing is stopping you when you cross that border. There's no border checkpoint. There's no, you know, passport to show. This is like just, just you know, it's, it's an invisible line. And so you buy your AR-15 in Indiana, drive into Chicago and shoot somebody. That's the urban center. That's where the violence occurs. And so I think that it does complicate things that we have this myriad of laws, like all stitched together in some ways. And we need stronger federal laws to bring those to an even keel. Yeah, and that, that's the that's part of the problem, isn't it, with the, the federal state divide is the fact that if you've got states passing laws, states can't pass laws that then affect other states. So that cross-state traffic can only be controlled or, you know, limited or restricted in some way by action by the, the federal government, not at state level. So even if states are willing, there are, there are limits to how much they can do when they've got borders that are, are permeable like that. Yeah, and, and my very simplistic view uh, as someone who lives in a country uh, where guns aren't legal and readily available is that if no one owns a gun, no one can fire a gun, so no one can get hit by a gun or shot by a gun, I should say. Um, and, and to me, that seems like a very easy solution, just stop people having guns. But tell me a bit about what you're doing with Every Town for Gun Safety, because it's not about stopping people from being able to buy guns. It's about preventing gun violence. And I guess there's an important distinction there. So, so tell me a bit about what the organization sort of aims to achieve. Um, there's actually, there's there's very little argument in the United States about what you would need to do to co completely prohibit guns go to go to the status of many, many other countries. We talk about Japan all the time where no one has guns at all. And, and they have no gun deaths. They had like one gun death two years ago or something. That's not on the table in the US. It's probably not viable logistically or politically. But there was a guy who wrote a book called Repeal the Second Amendment. And his argument wasn't that we should get rid of guns. His argument was actually we can find better ways to make guns legal and not just have everybody leaning on the Second Amendment all the time. Because the problem is that's how the debate works. That side of the debate is Second Amendment, Second Amendment, Second Amendment. My rights shall not be infringed. That's the part of the Second Amendment they're quoting, shall not be infringed. They conveniently forget to quote the part of the Second Amendment that says, well-regulated militia. <laughs> We'll get it. We could get into that deeper, but and, and Emma touched on it earlier. But yeah, so the so the debate in the U.S. is between one side saying guns everywhere all the time for everybody, no questions asked, and basically my side of the argument, which is saying uh, responsible gun owners and keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Um, so how do we keep guns out of the hand of dangerous people? We put up gatekeepers, uh, laws that will prevent that. So we we have we would have background checks on all gun sales and close that internet loophole that I mentioned. Um, we would have methods by which we can take a gun away from a, a gun owner who presents themselves as a imminent danger to themselves or others. Um, those are called uh, extreme risk protection orders, or, or we call them red flag laws, which allows law enforcement to do that. But there's also changes that need to be made just in our culture, right? And so we've talked a lot, and, and it's interesting, you can, you can have this conversation in the frame of suicide prevention, which gets more people to come to the table because everybody wants to prevent the suicides. Everyone thinks it's their God-given right to shoot the, the burglar that comes into their home, but they, they don't want their, their neighbor or their, or their father or whomever else to, to die by gun suicide. And so when we start to talk about suicide, we can start to make some cultural interventions that might keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. For example, promoting safe storage of your firearm, right? If you have a gun, you need to store it securely, separate from ammunition, you know, under lock and key. You know, if, if you or someone in your family is is in imminent danger to themselves or others, then maybe you need to remove that gun from the household. So how do you do it? Where does it go? By the way, 
that changes based on what state you live in and what resources are available to you as to how you can move that gun out of your home into another person's home or to give it to a gun dealer temporarily. And you can have that conversation. We try really hard to have that conversation around suicide. And of course, because I'm working with veterans in veteran community, we have a a larger problem with suicide and with gun suicide than do our civilian counterparts. So veterans are 1.5 times more likely to die by suicide and uh, 71% of veteran suicides are by gun compared to about half of non-veteran suicides. And so that's a vehicle to get us to keep hands guns out of the hands of dangerous people. On the other hand, we also don't want people just walking around with guns all the time. It creates problems. I mean, you, you think about during COVID, early COVID lockdowns, when there were protesters who wanted to have the, you know, quote unquote, right to go get their haircut, they in, they invaded the Michigan Capitol, the, the state house, and they did it with AR-15s. So they were protesting COVID restrictions and having to wear masks and not being able to get, get their haircut or their nails done or whatever. And they used AR-15s to do it. So there's also something in the culture where, especially assault weapons, but guns in general, they've become a talisman for for liberty, for freedom, for for virtues that, you know, Americans historically have espoused as, as part of our, our, our culture. And honestly, it's it's that's new. That's in the last few decades. And, you know, from a marketing standpoint, give all credit to the gun lobby for saying for getting them to say that AR-15 stand for freedom, because I, I'm not sure I understand how they got there, but they just started saying it. And, and people started listening and repeating. Um, and, and that's where we are, um, that it's, it has really become cultural. It's interesting how you touched on this idea of, of really needing to frame the argument in a way that gets people's attention and, and suicide um, seems to be the most effective angle to do that, which kind of takes us back to looking at how much politics and organisations like the NRA play in being able to get anything through because ultimately you have to play the game. To make change happen, you've got to play politics. But it can't be easy to do that when you've got an organisation like the NRA sitting behind a lot of the politicians in Congress, sort of stopping anything from happening. And again, I, I realise uh, I don't want to get sued from saying anything in this podcast. So I'm going to just throw this broad question out here. Are the NRA to blame? They're part of a problem, I would say, but the politics, as, as Chris has already alluded to, we've mentioned before, the politics are not just about the the NRA. They're about the, the economics of, of it and the fact that the gun business is a business and it exists to sell weapons. But it's also, like Chris said, the, the cultural element of this and the, the political element of this. You have to understand that the, the shift in the rhetoric about gun control uh, or gun rights and that kind of absolutist position, which is I have the right to own any kind of firearm and when, when, as many as I like, whenever I like, with no restrictions whatsoever, it's my right. You can't, you, you know, you can't infringe it. That emerges with the the rise of the conservative movement in the from the, the late 1970s onwards. The NRA is part of that, but it's part of a bigger movement that is looking at all kinds of rights, whether that's religious liberty or issues to do with abortion or the neoliberal economy, 
so it, it's hugely complicated and that, that kind of that absolutist movement to, to protect those rights in that language kind of links into some of those that broader politics and you can't you can't entirely separate those things out so yes the NRA is there it's hugely powerful it's had a huge amount of money despite and, and which has given it influence and its ability to, to shape elections through advertising or running again against candidates that they don't like by supporting others and, and so on and so forth. So yes, it's it's there, but I think we make a mistake in trying to understand the bigger context of this if we only look at the the NRA. Because even if you take the NRA out of the equation, if that was ever possible, you've still got all the other issues that we're we're talking about here. And, and I'll add to that 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 I think that again the NRA was the cloak for for the gun manufacturers, which which began at that same point in time in the late seventies, early eighties, with with abortion, which with the evangelical movement, with all these things that sort of became the the core of the conservative movement. And then today, you actually see the sort of the cloak has been taken off. One of the big wins that the gun violence prevention movement had was defanging the NRA from a political standpoint, because it became a badge of honor to have an F rating from the NRA if you were running on, on one side of a ticket, right? And so it used to be, even if you were a Democrat or a liberal running for a seat in Congress, that, that you needed to have a good rating from the NRA. That's how powerful they were. They could, they could influence both sides. However, that changed. And then you saw the NRA also make some mistakes on their own. They had some fiscal malfeasance and things, and, and they've lost a ton of donors. Also, all the mass shootings and the statements they put out around the mass shootings, Though the NRA has actually, in the last just few years, their their influence has waned. Now, there's other organizations. There's organizations that are right of the NRA. There's there's the National Sports Shooting Foundation, who I, I is actually politically sort of taking up some of the oxygen that the NRA used to have. The the point is that the gun manufacturers are still they're underneath, and they're still going to find a way. And so when you look at that, you need to look at what is their liability for these mass shootings? You saw the, the mass shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, which was 10 years ago. You're, you're seeing lawsuits now being being settled um, with the gun manufacturers around the way they marketed. And we're seeing more and more of that happening. Again, uh, alluding to big pharma and big tobacco and the way that they re- really collapsed, you're seeing that start to happen to the gun industry. And surely then it all comes down to money, right? Because if politicians weren't relying on organizations profiting from gun ownership, bankrolling their re-election campaigns, there wouldn't be a vested interest in protecting the interests of those companies. And then we could be in a situation where then politicians, when you remove that financial interest, maybe they'll all agree that actually there's 48,000 people a year that don't need to die and they could do something about it. They're not because it's economics, right? Like how much is a life worth? That's a great question. I mean, that that's a great question. I, at risk of, of taking an entire other branch of this conversation, that's the question that the United States has struggled with for its history, is how much is a life worth? And there are times in our history where, depending on the color of your skin, it was worth less. And, and I, would, I, would, I would actually make an argument that that is another piece that underlines this entire gun argument. I mean, the Second Amendment was written by slaveholders. Many of the gun laws were created after the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves to try to to try to you know capture runaway slaves or or quell slave or former slave rebellions. In the 1960s and 70s, when the Black Panthers started to arm themselves, that's when California started instituting gun laws. So there's a history of of, of racial undertones that we haven't even dove into that, that has a lot to do with the gun laws we have. And gun guns are mostly owned by white males in this country, not exclusively, but like percentage wise. If you look at suicides. 
white male gun suicides are 50% of all gun deaths in this country, right? So 80% of all gun suicides are white males. White males are only 35% of our population. So they own the guns, they're using it when they become suicidal, they're using those guns. So, so, so race has a ton to do with this. We could do a whole other podcast on it, of course. But, but I think that's important when we talk about the value of a life in that America has been confused for 250 years about what the value of a life is depending on certain circumstances. And maybe that's what we need to get right first, get straight first before we move into that. The, the other ironic part too, by the way, let's not forget there's a pro-life movement in the United States. These people who are against abortion, they're, but they're pro-death penalty and pro-gun. So I'm not even sure what that means semantically, right? I'll let, I'll let, I'll let the, the listeners go just chew on that one for a while. Wait, this whole, and the same people who claim to be pro-life are also pro-gun and pro-death penalty. So I don't, I, you know, that, that confuses me. It's always confused me. And I was raised Catholic and, and, and know that, that world pretty well. So I, I yes. Yeah, I think your point about race, though, is important, right? Because you look on the other side of that and homicide is the leading cause of death amongst young black men under the age of 45, right? According to the most right, most recent statistics. And the vast majority of those homicides are involve guns of some kind. So you've also got the disproportionate effect on communities of colour from that side as well, which then gets caught up in the debates about what you do about guns, about gun ownership and, and so on. So yeah, I think it, it, it's a part of the debate that, that's there, but being debated in some circles and, and not others. Let me tag one thing on to Emma's statistic, because this is also very important. I've give, given you grim statistics about white male suicides. You, she's given you grim statistics about deaths amongst African-Americans. Recently, guns became the leading cause of death in America for children and teenagers, period. More than cancer, more than car accidents. The leading cause of death for children in my country is guns. If that's not enough to show us that we have an immense problem, I honestly don't know what, what will be. So do you ever think there will be significant gun law reform in the US? I am hopeful. I work on it every day. I believe that we're a long way from this, but a shift of ideological bias in the Supreme Court could lead to a complete reinterpretation of the Second Amendment to interpret it more the way that Emma described it up front, which was literally that, in, in, in layman's terms, that when George Washington fought the Revolutionary War, he needed his militia members to BYOG, bring your own gun. That's what he needed because he didn't have, they didn't have a way to, to fund the arms. And that's what they meant in the Second Amendment was people who are going to be called to military duty need to have and practice with guns so that when that happens, they're ready. And if we start looking at those first words of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, uh, you're going to at least have a very, very more, much more strict interpretation of who should have what kind of guns, when and where. And I, and I do believe that if, if we could just keep those hand, guns in the hands of the responsible gun owners, we would see an, you know, an order of magnitude decrease in the gun deaths in this country. But it's going to take major political shifts and major cultural shifts for us to get there. This episode of America, a history podcast, was produced and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. The editor was Alex James. And a special thanks to our guests, Emma Long and Chris Marvin. 
If you're interested in learning more, we've put some links in the show notes for you. And remember to follow and share this podcast wherever you're listening. On the next episode, I'm joined by Professor Chris Bigsby as we try and figure out what is the American dream.